From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Harvey Weinstein is one person. The reason the story was so significant is partly because so many of the tactics he used to evade accountability were emblematic of a larger set of systems which are alive and well today and require more tough reporting. That's Ronan Farrow. He's the author of Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators. It's an account of his game-changing investigation into film producer Harvey Weinstein's history of sexual assault and the difficulties Farrow faced trying to get the initial story published. According to the book, NBC News killed the Weinstein story, so Farrow took the expose to The New Yorker, where he has since published a number of articles implicating powerful men in sexual misconduct and exposing the systems that kept them from justice for so long. Farrow's Weinstein reporting earned him the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Public Service, which he shared with reporters Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy of The New York Times. Farrow also adapted the book into a riveting nine-episode podcast, The Catch and Kill Podcast, in collaboration with Pineapple Street Studios. We'll get into all of that, plus his thoughts on the Harvey Weinstein trial, the role of the National Enquirer in protecting powerful men, and the complicated responsibilities lawyers face in the Me Too movement. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, stay tuned, listeners. We've got a nice surprise for you today. Guess who's helping me answer your questions at the top of the show? None other than my Cafe Insider co-host, Ann Milgram. On Tuesday, the White House announced a number of pardons and sentencing commutations, so we're going to do what we do each week on the Insider Pod and try to make sense of it all. And with that, hi, Ann. Hi, how you doing? I guess we could call this Pardon Palooza. <laughs> so just when you think you can rest one afternoon, there's pardon after pardon. The three most, I guess, conspicuous and famous pardons, Bernard Carrick, the former police commissioner in New York City, who had been the nominee to be the head of DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, that went south. That was prosecuted by my office. He pled guilty and was sentenced while I was the U.S. attorney, although my predecessor, Mike Garcia, is the one who oversaw the charging against him. Michael Milken, uh, one of the most famous insider trading cases of all time from 1990. And then Mr. Rod Blagojevich, the colorful former governor of Illinois, Democrat, who was prosecuted by my friend and former colleague, Patrick Fitzgerald, whom the president referred to as Fitzpatrick. (laughs) Um, On television yesterday, bunch of pardons. Let me read one of the questions from listeners and we can respond. This is from Ian M. Hill, who asks, what's the justification for any president to commute sentences or apply a complete pardon? Even if he, she were a former lawyer, how could they know better than the original judge, especially if the defendant pleaded guilty? Hashtag AskPreet. What do you make of all this, Anne? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And it's worth talking about clemencies and pardons just big picture for a minute, which is that it's a presidential power. It's a constitutional power in Article 2 of the Constitution. And the idea was always that there be this sort of avenue for mercy or fairness, that if the president felt that it was inappropriate, um, that somehow the sentence was too long, or if someone had, for example, gone to prison, served their time, come out, done good deeds, and really taken responsibility to sort of wash it away, to let them get on with their life. It's not used a ton. Obama used it frequently when it related to drug incarceration, people who had been given long sentences for drug crimes and and for a variety of other um, sort of nonviolent offenses. But what is really unique and what I want to just sort of stop on with Trump is not that the president doesn't have the power to do this. He absolutely does. It's the way he's using it that I think is so deeply troubling. I mean, these are all folks who are 
either political corruption or, you know, I consider both Rod, um, I can never say his last name, (laughs) Rod Blagojevich and Bernie Carrick, um, they're both political corruption cases in my view. And, you know, there are, and Milken, of course, is famous for junk bonds and really being at sort of like the height of corporate greed. They're all sort of individuals who are people who had an enormous amount of opportunity. They're white collar criminals. To me, it is stunning that the president really chooses to spend his clemency power and his commutation power on these folks. I mean, what does it say to you, Preet? I mean, I, what I was stunned by was not that the president would want to pardon or commute these people, but that he's so brazen and basically saying, I'm just going to do the white-collar defendants. I'm not going to do Well, he, he does, he does from time to time the others, but he understands the power of the press release. He understands the power of news. And so he knows when he pardons people who were involved in sensational cases that were a big deal, that that is what's going to grab attention and drive the narrative. So he knows exactly what he's doing, even if there's some people from time to time who don't fall into this narrow category that you're that you're talking about. Going back to the person's question, what's the justification? He doesn't need to have one because the Constitution says you have this power and this right. But like with anything else, if you want to have a system that's fair and perceived as fair, a system of protocols develops over time. You know, so- sometime after the Constitution was drafted in more recent history, there was set up in the Department of Justice the Office of the Pardon Attorney. And even though the president has absolute authority to do whatever the hell he wants with respect to pardons and commutations, there was a process that was set up so it would look like it was fair and so that the most deserving commutation and pardon applications would make their way through the process and a recommendation would be made by the pardon attorney to the White House. And generally speaking, that was in consultation with the prior prosecutors, the judge, the defense lawyer, taking into account how the law may have changed and how maybe perceptions in society have changed about the the heinousness of the crime, and also a whole list of criteria. Again, not mandatory, but a whole list of criteria, including a level of remorse of the person who committed the crime, whether the fact of the conviction has held that person back in material ways, uh, what kind of an exemplary life they've lived since that time, so that it's not only people who are famous, it's not only people who have famous lawyers, not only people who know Kim Kardashian, but there's a system through which, in some fair and appropriate and balanced and legitimate way that's done with integrity, a president can make good and wise choices as to how to exercise this completely unfettered power of his. And the fact that he bypasses all of that is a problem. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, which is that usually there is a process that's followed. And again, the president doesn't have to, but traditionally presidents have followed them. And with this, the president, you know, the reporting um, was that the president basically said he followed, quote, recommendations in making his decisions, but it's not clear that he relied on what would be the normal Justice Department vetting process. And it is a really important thing for people to believe that there's a fair and transparent process for when these things take place. I'll tell you one other thing that's a little unusual is that we've seen in the past, I mean, Obama set up this whole process where people had to apply and there were certain conditions that they had to meet and the pardon attorneys had to sort of go through everybody who was in federal prison and the applications to see who was eligible. This is the exact opposite of that. And this type of pardon is much more akin to what we've seen presidents do on their way out of office, right? right? And to sort of see like, you know, you remember President Clinton and Mark Rich, which was sort of 11th hour as he was walking out the door. Yeah, that was a heinous, uh, by the way, we should just mention. It was a there, terrible to, to, pardon. Yeah. So it's not just that that this president, I think, abuses the power, although he has the power. You know, I, I worked in the U.S. attorney's office in SDNY as a line prosecutor at the time. And I've said this before. Mary Jo White opened up an investigation of President Clinton, the man who appointed her because of how stinky the pardon of Mark Rich was. Yes. 
I mean, I think there have long been issues about how the presidents use this power. I would also say this is sort of fascinating. In the Bernie Carrick pardon, and remember, he was convicted of tax fraud and lying to the government. Trump said that he'd heard from more than a dozen people who wanted Mr. Carrick to be pardoned, including Rudy Giuliani, um, Geraldo Rivera, Eddie Gallagher, the former former Navy SEAL accused of war crimes. Um, You know, and it's it's just sort of like this is how the world is working. And, you know, I've seen there are people who were incarcerated for life sentences for three strikes are out on things like writing bad checks. There are people in the, you know, the war on drugs who are incarcerated for decades for, you know, largely non violent offenses. And of course, there's a fair and I think robust debate right now about what the right length of sentence is in some crimes. But this really is not about that. This is really about, you know, is the president exercising his power in favor of friends? You know, and and again, they're all people, in my view, who largely are seen to have violated the public trust in some way. Yeah. So if you look at, there's a very astute question or observation made by another listener, Mark Dukes, who says, did you notice that all the president's pardons and commutations today were for felons who had violated the public trust or were outright corrupt? Birds of a feather. And there are some people are saying, well, of course, the president wants to pardon people who have engaged in conduct that he himself has been accused of engaging in and he doesn't want to go to prison for. Right? So right. somebody, I think, said on Twitter, it's kind of like anticipatory projection. <laughs> <laughs> It's well, it definitely also does. It yes, definitely. And it also definitely, I mean, you know, you and I have talked about this before on the Cafe Insider, but it sets up the stone pardon as well. Um, and I think, you know, there's no question that the president is looking, in my view at least, to pardon stone also or to commute his sentence. And so this is sort of setting up the path forward on that potentially as well. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. And just, you know, again, as with respect to Roger Stone, when you have the case of Blagojevich, there have been people, including Democrats, who have said, you know what, 14 years was maybe too long. And, you know, in the in the Kerry case, by the way, whose sentencing I was U.S. attorney for, the judge went above the guidelines and gave a sentence to Bernie Kerry of, of four years that was beyond what the government sought. And there are fair and legitimate arguments and good faith arguments that sentences are too long. But when you have a person exercising his power, whether it's reaching into the Justice Department and Roger Stone or using the pardon power in a particular way, I think it prompts a lot of cynicism, and that's not a good thing. Yeah, I agree. All right. Thanks, Preet. Great to chat with you. Thanks for being on. Stay tuned. Thanks for having me. Talk soon. Hey, folks. So that conversation you just heard between me and Anne is the kind of thing we do every week on the Cafe Insider podcast. We break down the news, try to explain what's going on, make sense of what's happening. It's confusing to a lot of people. And we go deep, and we go for a long time, usually up to an hour. Right now, you can subscribe for free for two weeks by going to cafe.com slash insider. Try it out for free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated, you never use it. That's exactly the type of security system Simply Safe has spent a decade fighting against. They believe that simple is safer. And it's exactly why Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your home 24 7. Order online with the click of a button, open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come and disrupt your house. And you don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. Their 24-7 professional monitoring and emergency dispatch starts at 50 cents a day. That's a deal. 
considering that Simply Safe was named Best Overall Home Security of 2020 by U.S. News and World Report. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafe.com/preet to make sure they know that our show sent you. My guest this week is Ronan Farrow. Farrow has been at the journalistic forefront of the Me Too movement, publishing explosive allegations in The New Yorker, implicating film producer Harvey Weinstein, former New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, and former CBS President Les Moonves. His book, Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators, recounts the obstacles he faced in publishing sexual assault allegations against Weinstein. This isn't Farrow's first time on the show. A prodigious scholar of foreign policy and the law, he joined us to talk about the future of American diplomacy in April 2018. But today, he joins me to talk about the complicated roles that lawyers have played in the Me Too movement, the shady world of intelligence firms, and how NBC News tried to kill his Weinstein reporting. We also talked through Donald Trump's relationship to the National Enquirer, SDNY's role in prosecuting Me Too-related cases, and the importance of whistleblowers in speaking truth to power. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Ronan Farrow, thanks again for being on the show one more time. Thank you for having me back. It's good to have you back. It's been a while. I basically browbeat you until you let me back. <laughs> that is not true. I'm just coming up to you at parties and saying, why won't you let me back? <laughs> I don't go to parties. Sure. So I'll, uh, I'll, let, I'll let that untruth stand. <laughs> it's to, one of the only untruths. your street cred. It's one of the only untruths you, you let stand. That's true. So let's talk about, let me first congratulate you on your book, which is not that new at the moment, Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators. Podcast by the same name. You're welcome. Podcast by the same name. Can we do one thing before we get into all these issues that are continuing to vex the country and the Harvey Weinstein trial that has gone into deliberations even as we speak? It's Tuesday, I think, February 18th. Yeah, you may have a problem of uh, a verdict coming down between us. Well, we're going to record two versions of this. We're going to record one. (laughs) (laughs) Assuming, well, three, actually. Uh, Conviction, acquittal, hung jury, right? So get prepared to be here for three hours. (laughs) But last time you were here, just one unfinished bit of business. We talked about your book, The War on Peace. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you said throughout that interview was the importance of the diplomats we have in the State Department and the morale of the folks in the State Department, the unsung heroes who do all this amazing work and help to keep us safe and help to keep our alliances strong. And you worried about them a little bit. Yeah. And that was almost two years ago, April of 2018. And then we also talked a bit about a particular person who's become a lot more well-known since then, a gentleman by the name of Mike Pompeo, who was looking like he was going to become the Secretary of State. And you said, back on April 26, 2018, on this podcast, I would hope that Mike Pompeo, as a compassionate person, would reflect on the importance of this workforce, meaning the diplomats in the State Department, and the extent to which it needs defending and restoring right now. How did that work out? Uh, Well, I should say in full disclosure, I've been holding off on the paperback of War on Peace because, as you may recall, I interviewed every living Secretary of State, and I think it merits uh, an updated version with some discussion of Pompeo. So I'm going to keep my powder a little bit dry for that. You know, as you may have heard from people in that workforce, the feelings in that building continue to be complicated. And certainly there are still a lot of hopes riding on Pompeo. And the bar was set very low in terms of the professionalism of the management in that building. You know, he is a more accomplished and experienced politician and navigator of D.C. than Rex Tillerson was. 
there's a lot of reason for that optimism, and it's something I'm going to be writing and thinking about whether he made good on those hopes. But as you watched the impeachment inquiry and the trial, I don't want to get you know too into, into the weeds depending on what you're going to write about, and you saw diplomat after diplomat coming forward and testifying and not being defended by Michael Pompeo. What did you think, given your work there? Well, I think that the recent news cycle has somewhat vindicated the premise of the book, which was diplomats are too infrequently being let into the room where decisions are made. They are being pink-slipped and shown the door. You know, we don't have enough manpower in a diplomatic capacity on the ground in so many places. And you really see the consequences of that writ large in the impeachment proceedings. You see, you know, the way uh, a Marie Ivanovich gets treated, the way in which when you deprofessionalize diplomacy and don't let diplomats make the decisions and keep an eye on the conversations, you wind up with all of this uncertainty of what was promised on a call, what deals were made. If these conversations were handled in the context of a more traditional diplomatic strategy, you wouldn't have room for a lot of that. You wouldn't have room for one-on-one secretive conversations becoming compromise <laughs> that can blow up our political reality. And, you know, you see that in impeachment. You see it in Jared uh, Kushner having one-on-one conversations with the Chinese that diplomats are not allowed to monitor. It's a dangerous business, and it's a good reminder that the deprofessionalizing and strip mining of diplomacy doesn't just hurt us abroad, it creates situations that can be used against us in a domestic political context too. So let's get to catch and kill. When you came on the show last, I think you had just won the Pulitzer Prize Mm -hmm. for reporting on these issues. So some people could have taken the Pulitzer Prize and said, I'll move on to something else because you already got that huge distinction in writing. Why'd you decide you needed to write this book? Well, I did move on to something else. I mean, uh, strikingly, like the wonderful reporters at the Times, who also did great work on the Weinstein story, you know, went straight into their book. And I felt a fair amount of anxiety about the fact that I instead took two years to report out other stories um, that were largely unrelated. But from the beginning, one of those stories was a lot of reporting on the ways in which these kinds of investigations get killed under duress from powerful people. And it was increasingly clear as I got to the finish line on the Weinstein story that that was a a separate body of investigative reporting that needed to be done in its own right. So that catapulted me into the book. And, you know, I kind of did a bit of both. The reporting for the book was coming together as I proceeded to break, you know, the Schneiderman story with Jane Mayer, uh, the CBS story with all the work that I did about Les Moonves and that company, you know, the MIT Epstein fundraising relationship story and on and on. The Trump hush payment stories were, I think, largely after I last talked to you. So describe what Catch and Kill is for the few remaining people who don't understand the concept. So Catch and Kill is a term from the tabloid journalism world. And it refers in a literal sense to when a tabloid outlet acquires the rights to a story, buys up a story, and then has whoever is selling the story sign away their right to ever talk about it anywhere else, And then instead of publishing it, they bury it. You know, they put it in a vault at the National Enquirer, never to see the light of day again. Why? Why do you do that? Usually, in the kinds of cases we're talking about, to appease a powerful friend of that outlet. And this was something 
the Inquirer did a lot of. It was a blackmail outfit, in the words of a lot of sources I talked to, where they would buy up the rights to something unflattering about someone and then hold it over them, compromise, basically, to try to get an exclusive with them. Lots of examples of this. Uh, that so are sometimes just, it was to hold it over their head, but sometimes it was to just appease them or do a favor to them. Right. It was a stick side of the relationship and a carrot side of the relationship. So, you know, you have situations... The perfect kind of relationship. Right. As with any ended. healthy relationship. <laughs> you want to have the carrot end. I mean, there's a great... It didn't make the final cut of the podcast. So there's, there's the book Catch and Kill, and then there's the podcast Catch and Kill, and you can do them in either order. They're independent pieces of storytelling. You know, probably my favorite, like, canon order is uh, the book in which you get this whole arc of a sort of mystery thriller plot, and then the podcast where you get to spend, you know, an hour apiece with major characters in it, learning their life stories and side plots and so forth. But one of the things that uh, very nearly made the cut of the podcast and in the end didn't, because the audio was uh, quite rough quality for general listeners was archival tape of David Pecker, the CEO of American Media, which owned for many years the National Enquirer. Um, He was the National Enquirer personified through a lot of these deals, telling the story to Jeffrey Tubin, a New Yorker writer, of how this kind of practice worked in a very typical case, Tiger Woods. And this is easy to talk about because most of this stuff has already come out publicly, so this is not particularly new or inflammatory, uh, although it is an absurd story in terms of the specific color involved. They, uh, through their network of you know moles and people who call in to try to sell a story for a buck, got a tip from the mother of a woman who was having a, you know, an extramarital fling with Tiger Woods. And the, the woman was a... And this is back before all this became known. Yes, that's right. And the woman was a waitress at a diner that Tiger frequented, and the mother narked and called the Inquirer and sold this tip. And the Inquirer proceeded to, you know, put guys in the bushes, basically, where Tiger and this young woman would have parking lot rendezvous of various kinds. And there was actually a case where uh, they caught them in the act, and they tried to adjourn the act and run away. Uh, Did you say adjourn the act? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So your your legal degree sometimes comes back to haunt you. <laughs> yeah, this is the worst. <laughs> like, you can't bring me anywhere, Pre. Yeah. Um, but they were able to get the story anyway because the young woman had thrown out a used tampon because there was some urgency to the act, apparently, and they just needed to do it right then and there. So the Inquirer reporters, this is the kind of muckraking you're talking about, you know, collected this used tampon and DNA tested it and were able to get the story. And then that's sort of the absurdity of tabloid journalism in general, journalism with air quotes. But uh, the the interesting and significant part is how the pattern of buying and burying stories work and how it can be held over people. Because in that case, what they did was, you know, they went to Tiger's lawyer and said, you know, they, he as he narrates it in this tape, he's like, you know, we never explicitly cut a deal. It was all sort of just suggested. We have this. Would you like to finally say yes to doing a cover story for one of our, you know, sports magazines we have in this publishing empire. Tiger has been saying no for several years. Will he say yes now that he knows that if he doesn't, maybe this story will include a lot more unflattering details. And is that done expressly? Well, you do this, this otherwise we're going to do that? I mean, I would take David Pecker's narration of this with a grain of salt. As he says it, it's slightly sort of implicit. And they don't kill the story for Tiger. It's a mild case because they don't kill it completely. They just omit certain pertinent details like the tampon. So what happens is Tiger is suddenly on this cover of an AMI publication, um, this parent company, the National Enquirer. And the story that comes out is much softened around the margins. So that's like an innocuous, typical 
version of how these deals can work. In your travels with respect to these incidents of catch and kill, I don't mean to ask you to put your lawyer hat back on again, but maybe I will. Do any of these get close enough to bona fide unlawful extortion? Yeah, I mean, honestly, my uh, analysis of it is it is absolutely coercive. And more significantly, as I approach the problem, we just talked about an innocuous case in terms of the stakes for the nation. But when you start to get to political figures who are attempting to bury stories, say, to influence the outcome of an election, you end up with multiple legal problems, one of which prosecutors at your old haunt oh. decided was indeed illegal, and uh, they sent a Trump associate uh, to jail in part for that violation of election law. I remember that. Yep. So that was to do with the catching and killing of stories about Donald Trump by the National Enquirer during the election. And with respect to Trump overall, how many stories would you say AMI slash the National Enquirer has killed for the benefit of Donald Trump? So, right, in, in the Trump case, you have sort of the positive side of how this relationship can work, positive in the sense that uh, instead of explicitly holding things over Donald Trump, although we don't know the inside of that relationship and don't know how long that happened or how much that was part of the dynamic, it seems like a lot of what they were doing was working with Donald Trump to actively find dirt and then hide it from the public. So we don't know exactly how many stories were killed as opposed to just softened, how many stories might never have even been recorded in writing uh, because they were so sensitive. But I can tell you that in the course of reporting for this book, I ultimately did see a master list that was labeled uh, due to source protection issues, I have to paraphrase, but something to the effect of Donald Trump killed. And it's, you know, a, a list of about 60 stories. Um, 60 stories over what period of time? This is historical. So this goes back several decades um, and extends up into the 2000s. And what does AMI get for this? So that's always the question. And it's one that I've asked a lot of employees of AMI. It's one that I ask a lot of employees of AMI in the book, on the podcast. Certainly, David Pecker is someone who, if you look at his biography, and Dylan Howard, his second lieutenant, they're both people who are sort of obsessed with celebrity and delight in sort of the destruction of celebrity and seeing the fall of someone that they can smear and also delight in proximity to celebrity. So they love this kind of an alliance. And so many AMI employees who worked closely with Pecker talked about his delight at being on, you know, Sylvester Stallone's plane, uh, you know, being able to rub elbows with Charlie Sheen when they were for a time holding over him the fact that they knew his HIV diagnosis, the alliance that uh, Dylan Howard had with Paris Hilton. There are all these historical cases, right. and Trump is one where David Pecker would brag a lot about, I can be on his plane, I can hang so out there, with so him. So there's some people that they, they decided to just destroy because that's one of the things that they did, but then others that they decided to prop up, and that's just based on the peccadillos and the whims of David Pecker? Well, it seems like it's also based on whether they went along with it. You know, I think that these can become relationships where there's an attempt to hold something over someone and they play ball and say, okay, I'll cut a deal. And then it becomes an ongoing uh, deal and a relationship that they have. Or there are cases where people don't play ball and then they, they get smeared. I mean, the, the Jeff Bezos case is a great example. In a separate context, as you write about at length in the book, and I want to get into it a little bit, there was a point in time when you used to work for NBC mm -hmm. and some of this uh, future award-winning reporting that you did, groundbreaking discovery that you engaged in, you thought you were going to put on the air at NBC. 
and that didn't happen. Your legal past is also coming back to haunt you. <laughs> what it, did I say? Thank you for calling it groundbreaking discovery. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was more interesting than actual legal discovery. <laughs> I'll change the phrase. Depending on the case, sure. Groundbreaking reporting. Ronan Thank you. So, so there was no catch here, but there was a kill well, on well, the part of NBC. Right. And you're pretty uh, frank about how that went down. So in the context of the book, the term catch and kill becomes relevant and was very clearly the correct title, both because the trail of clues ultimately leads to Harvey Weinstein's relationship with the National Enquirer, where he was one of these people who was using them to dig up dirt on his opponents, to kill stories. Um, basically, by the end of when the Weinstein story was breaking, Dylan Howard, the second in command at the National Enquirer at the time, was you know moved into Harvey Weinstein's offices. In the words of many sources around this, you know, spending a lot of time with him, going through files of dirt, trying to save Harvey Weinstein and uh, intimidate or smear his his victims. Um, you know, Dylan Howard denies this, et cetera, et cetera. That's all reflected in the book. And then the trail of clues leads onward from Weinstein and the National Enquirer to Trump and the National Enquirer, which then led me to a number of significant stories about what was happening during the election. So that's part of the plot of the book in a literal sense, catch and kill. There's also a figurative meaning, which you're getting at here, which is, you know, we've talked in the weeds about the actual tabloid practice, but it is emblematic of a larger problem, which I really think is one of the big threats to our democracy and our basic freedoms, which is restraints placed upon the free flow of information by powerful people, whether it's literally using a tabloid to buy up stories and suppress them before voters can see them in an election. In this case, as what prosecutors found was an undeclared campaign contribution and a violation of campaign finance law. Or it can be the more attenuated thing that happens all the time, which is a powerful person leans on an outlet to get a story killed. And in the case where I was encountering it, it was very clear it was happening to me and my producer from a very early point. We may have even talked about this a little when I was last on the podcast, because it was already filtering into the news cycle. We did, but then in part, a little bit, you didn't want to step on what you were going to say about how you were stymied, because that was what you were starting to write about in the book. Which was not just as, you know, a cynical attempt to withhold stuff for the book. It was very clear to me, once I kind of looked at this landscape in which this is a reality, most of us don't think about day-to-day, that there are important stories, maybe even stories that, if broken, could prevent people from getting physically hurt. I mean, this was a case where there was an alleged serial rapist on the loose and fairly recent examples... Harvey Weinstein. To be clear, yeah. And fairly recent examples of him striking in a way that seemed to have an M.O. And so the stakes weren't just the abstract problem of what if an important story gets killed, but also a literal... What if the next person who walks into a room with this guy doesn't have that information, isn't armed with that and the knowledge that they maybe should protect themselves? In fairness to outlets for a moment, you would agree, though, that when such a sensational allegation and serious allegation is being reported on with respect to somebody, whether they're powerful or not, that the outlet should be somewhat cautious. Absolutely. And rigorous. So There's a reason each one of these stories that I break takes such a massive amount of time and such a, a massive legal and fact-checking undertaking. None of this, the stuff in the book is, uh, you know, fired from the hip. This right. stuff was vetted and re But your point, your point in the book and elsewhere is that NBC, with respect to these stories, was not being sort of your, your usual, um, responsibly cautious outlet. 
they were not acting in good faith. That's right. So so what I was saying before about not just withholding that information, um, you know, for kicks because I wanted people to read it in the book, it was also because it became apparent to me and everyone else on a journalistic level who witnessed what happened at that company um, that something big and strange had happened that out of fairness to all of those people who killed the story at NBC, I mean, my maxim is always fairness to the subject of the reporting, had to be investigated thoroughly. And it did take two years of tracking down to the point where in the book you can read all those transcripts of secret calls they've now admitted that they had with Harvey Weinstein, all the cases in which they assured him it would be killed. And, you know, we're now far enough out from the book that this has been much litigated. You know, Rachel Maddow got on air and said, I've corroborated the claims in this book. They did kill the story. People on their own air called for leadership change for an investigation, which they've refused to have. There's been no outside investigation there. Um, and all, the the key players at that news division are still in their jobs. The facts are now not really at issue. I think people know that that story was killed inappropriately, and you can read a detailed timeline of it in the book. But the retrospective point I would make, Preet, is when that blew up into the news cycle, it was this big contentious thing. But since the book came out, so many executives who reported directly to Steve Burke, the at the time CEO of NBC Universal, and that's part of what happens in the book, is this classic thing, like a scene from The Insider where CBS kills the big tobacco story where the lawyers are ready to go seek comment from Harvey Weinstein and the journalists are ready to go and then the president of the network, this guy Noah Oppenheim, says, you can't go to seek comment from Harvey Weinstein, we got to go to my boss. And then that guy says, we got to go to the parent company. So it gets kicked up and up and up. And uh, so, since the book came out, so many of those executives at the parent company have said, oh yeah, they were just casual about saying they were killing it. Steve Burke would sit in meetings and say, oh my God, Harvey Weinstein's calling all the time. This is such a pain in the ass. And you know, one recounted asking him, well, like, is it true? And Burke just looking at him like it was crazy saying, what? is it true? I, we can't run it. I'll never hear the end of it. So I point that out to illustrate as this is happening to the people involved, the killing of a story like this usually just feels banal and expedient. You know, Steve Burke was a smart businessman with a background in running theme park gift shops. He's not a journalist. Whenever you have a news organization embedded in a large company like that, and TV news organizations have to be because TV is an expensive business. Um, so like the nature of the beast is you're going to have a big parent company most of the time. You have a lot of mixed equities. That guy's running a movie studio that's more significant financially, fiscally than the news division. Yeah, so for them, because sometimes it's the case that you're worried about a lawsuit. In this case, it was much more about the business arrangement and lost opportunities and getting on the wrong side of somebody who has power and fame, or is that not so? I think that's an oversimplification. I, I, because what Harvey Weinstein was delivering in those calls was threats that he was going to sue everyone into the ground. And he had hired Charles Harder, who was the attorney who uh, you know brought down Gawker, um, so there was, you know, there's a combination of sticks and carrots. He sends Noah Oppenheim a bottle of Grey earth. Goose to to celebrate the killing of the story afterwards. And we have all those comms in the book. And, you know, that's a guy he's working on who is a screenwriter, is his great passion. And he's worried about those relationships. So there's that kind of the carrots incentive part of the relationship and the leaning on them. And then there's also uh, the sticks, which is just constant. I'm, we're going to sue you into the ground. This is going to cause a huge loss. It's going to, you know, shake your news organization to its core. And legitimate journalists stand up to that and, and understand how to differentiate between a threat and a credible reality of a legal problem. But, you know, I think when you're dealing with an edict from a parent company that this must not run, suddenly those 
uh, legal threats start to look really significant. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm confused about something. I think maybe listeners might be also. Because the context in which I think of stories being killed, there's a parallel one from my old universe. And that is a concern people have that there's an investigation going on in the Southern District or in the District of Columbia or somewhere else, and that Bill Barr might be wanting to kill an investigation, not quite the same as killing a story, because mm-hmm. he's beholden to the president. Mm-hmm. And I've often thought about that and suggested to people, it's really hard to kill something when it's fully formed and it's on the eve of indictment, or in your case, on the eve of publication, mm-hmm. that if you really want to go about it the right way, whether it's in good faith or in bad faith, and in both circumstances, yep. I think we mean bad faith, you want to never get Ronan out on the road in the first place. You want to nip that thing in the bud. You want to make sure that there are people in place, if you're nefarious, and not get it so far down the line that now Ronan will have a good cause for saying, this was a true and real story. It's so true and real that I ultimately got it published in The New Yorker. I could write a book about it. Explain that to us. And that's astute and exactly what happens here. What you see is, you know, we bring in the first on-the-record interviews in, you know, February. Rose McGowan was showing her face saying, Harvey Weinstein raped me. First, not using name on the record and then naming him on the record and saying NBC can use that. And we had that for months and months. And then very rapidly, we had a tape of Harvey Weinstein admitting to it, this tape we've discussed before that was suppressed during a criminal investigation. And it started to become harder and harder for them to just say, actually, you should stop reporting. But they did say that. I mean, from the beginning, from the first on-the-record interview, we start getting these strange calls, me and my producer, both of us independently being told, you know, let's just put this on the back burner. Let's have you not be on the road working on this. And But was there ever a direct order that you need to stand down? Yes. So, so it escalates to that. It starts with, why is this a priority? Your career is going so great, Ronan. Your series is doing well. Why focus on this? It'd be a shame if something thing. happened to that lovely career. <laughs> uh, honestly, I mean, it, when you review the transcripts of a lot of these communications, they're very menacing And it's very clear that there's an effort to stop this from the beginning, which goes from the euphemisms, back burner, a lot of use of that phrase, back burner it, back burner it, all the way up to you have got to stop, you need to cancel that interview. But that effort fails. What ultimately succeeds in the end is the thing about which they have ultimate control, and that is whether they air it or not. Fair? Well, it's it's more actually they send it out the door finally. There's a there's a confrontation. So my producer and I respond to those initial efforts to slow roll the story and order us to back off. You know, the producer is told a wonderful journalist named Rich McHugh, you shouldn't be taking calls about this, focus on other things. They try to assign Rich to other stories. Then we keep reporting somewhat in secret. There's all sorts of ways in the book that we try to keep it under the radar because our assessment is, well, maybe they're just spooked initially, but to your point you made earlier, once we have it all solid, it'll be fine. And then we get it solid to the point of literally having audio of him admitting to an assault. And then it becomes even more uncomfortable because they're still trying to find ways to say no. And it comes to a head where we have more incoming interviews. The story is still racing along in terms of the reporting. More women are coming forward. There's a woman who is willing, Ali Canosa, who's willing to go on camera and make this incredibly serious assault allegation. And there is a hard order, basically without explanation. You know, there's been a lot of, oh, do we have enough? And is it news? And is it worth it? But there's never been a reason articulated to us why there would be an order to stop. There's various excuses. Oh, wait for this next landmark. Wait for this. Wait for us to assign another person. But once everything is in place and there's no more legitimate excuses and we have more interviews coming in and we're ordered to stop, 
I finally am in a position where I just have to say no. And then I'm very rapidly told, you, you've been terminated, you're not getting another deal. We're both told you need to absolutely stand down. If you're going to go rogue and continue reporting this, NBC can't have anything to do with it. And finally, we're all terrified that they're going to sit on the story, that I'm not going to be able to bring it somewhere else is the big fear. So I try to negotiate a solution where I can walk away with it. And it's a very, you can read in the book how it went down, but it's a real high wire act. And I am able to basically extract from Noah Oppenheim, this president of NBC, look, I don't know what's going on here. Clearly, there's no meeting of the minds on getting this on air now. Why don't I bring it to a print publication? And he, he has suggested this in various conversations already. One of the strange things about this fact pattern is the executives at NBC start saying, what you've got here is a great Vanity Fair story. What you've got here is a great New York Magazine story. But does that mean, And so I take him up on right. it, and I walked out the door with it. But does that mean that they were less concerned about protecting Harvey Weinstein and more concerned about just it not being on them? I think it's both. I mean, there's a clearly a leadership-level decision to protect Harvey Weinstein on this. It's not worth the fight. There is also, you know, there's specific stuff being held over them. There's a whole, there's, I delve into all the different facets of this. But there is also a real symptom of just your garden variety corporate cowardice, where exactly what you just said is happening. Every single person in that chain of command passes the buck. And there's a sort of soliloquy that Noah Oppenheim gives me in the end where this is starting to break out into the press, it's becoming a scandal, and he says, he kind of wails to me, like, if there's ever a chance to tell people, I wasn't the villain, and he says, I had a boss, you know, and this guy, it was this guy's fault, it was that guy's fault, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. Um, and I, I do that for him. I say, like, okay, Noah Oppenheim wasn't the villain, but that is so often what, if you want to use the term villainy, that's what he went to, looks like, right? It's the, the well, that's banality a, that's a, of... Yeah, of evil. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not to invoke that phrase specifically, which obviously has a, a very specific historical context, but certainly it is a kind of totally banal risk avoidance and corporate cowardice that leads to a lot of people getting hurt, a lot of bad things happening. None of the people whose job it was to stand up and say, A, as a matter of principle, journalistically, this is going to be a big enough story. I mean, bear in mind, just a few weeks later, it ran in The New Yorker and won the Pulitzer. But B, as a pragmatic risk assessment, I'm the president of a news network. It's my job to see when killing a story this overtly is going to be bad for the company, which it was. No one realized, oh, this is my job. Everyone does a, it's above my pay grade. Right. So that's one of the big lessons that I walk away from this body of reporting with, you know, that it, sometimes it is your job. Stand up and, and do what Rich McHugh, that working level producer did. It, it actually wasn't his job to safeguard the story, but he did everything in his power to do so, including ultimately losing his job over it. What you just mentioned raises an interesting issue for me that I hadn't thought about. The ethical obligation you have to get permission from an outlet to run a story that you were working on while you were at that outlet at some other outlet. In other words, did you have the view that NBC sort of owned the property that was the investigative reporting you were doing, so you needed to get their blessing to go to the New Yorker, or could you have just done that on your own anyway? Well, Harvey Weinstein was sending legal threat letters to me saying, A, I know NBC is killing the story. They have given me written assurances that they are terminating all reporting about me and won't pursue that reporting in the future. Essentially, I have a deal with him, was his claim. I have a deal with NBC. And then B, he was saying, NBC has assured me they're going to make a copyright claim on this material, that they will assert their intellectual property rights over this footage. And it actually, it gets to a relatively untested area of law, 
you know, the New Yorker's legal view, the New Yorker article uses all those interviews. It doesn't use the video. It uses the contents. And the New Yorker's view was, first of all, it, the idea that NBC would actually make good on those promises to Harvey Weinstein is absurd. It would look totally bizarre. It would never hold up in court. And second of all, there is no real legitimate legal claim to the ideas and quotes in the interview. You know, they have an intellectual property right in the footage that they paid for the crews to create. But nevertheless, you know, they're a powerful company, and I was afraid that they might make good on that. They were already behaving so strangely on this that I needed to get out of there. I was going to say in a way that, you know, preserved my future as much as possible, but it was increasingly clear that was a lost cause. But certainly get out of there in a way that limited the likelihood that they were going to impede the story elsewhere. So there was one other threat that Harvey Weinstein made to NBC, I guess, relating to exposing a dark hypocrisy on the part of NBC that you write about in the book, which relates to Matt Lauer. Mm -hmm. Explain what that was about. Well, this gets back to catch and kill, the literal tabloid use of the term catch and kill. Uh, Harvey Weinstein had this deep relationship with the National Enquirer. Increasingly, the National Enquirer's editor-in-chief, Dylan Howard, was holed up with him as his strategic second-in-command. They were going after any and all dirt they could find on anyone who was working to expose Harvey Weinstein and anything he could use as leverage. And in that same period, Dylan Howard pulls a file of killed stories related to Matt Lauer, we have tape in the podcast, actually, of in this very period of the summer of 2017, Dylan Howard very openly saying, you know, we're very focused on Matt Lauer right now. Um, and they did, this isn't speculative, they did indeed start to run story after story about Matt Lauer, including Matt Lauer and various forms of sexual impropriety. So, you know, you have a, it's all of a piece. You have a situation where uh, a company, as it turns out, has a long history of secret payments to suppress claims of sexual misconduct within the company. We saw this at CBS, we saw it at NBC. And then you have someone bearing down on them with all of these both enticements and legal threats. And there's a strange intersection that happens where I'm being told by NBC's lawyers, look, you can't report on sources that have non-disclosure agreements about sexual harassment. As literally in the same time frame, they have people from their uh, legal department calling women that have been paid out to shut up about sexual impropriety at NBC. So you start to see how these kinds of practices of covering up problems and keeping powerful people accused of those kinds of problems in their jobs instead of addressing those issues leads to a kind of rot that then affects news coverage. It is a problem when you have a company defending these kinds of agreements and upholding them on their own end with respect to their own misconduct issues and then they're faced with the prospect of reporting on those same kinds of legal structures. There were lots of reasons why NBC didn't want to go forward. I'm glad you were able to publish both those articles and also this book. But since we've been talking about Harvey Weinstein a bunch, we should talk for a little bit about what is most imminent with respect to the future of Harvey Weinstein, his liberty, and also people's feelings about all of this attention to the Me Too movement. I did read, by the way, and I wonder how you react to this personally, that during jury selection it was reported that 50 jurors had to be sent home because they had read Catch and Kill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you have a reaction to that? Do you have a feeling of pride about that? Do you, do you wish they had been able to remain on the jury? Well, no reporter wants to be the story. I mean, it's one thing that made this book so difficult, that this was a story that in order to tell it, 
I had to bring myself into it, right? Uh, Harvey Weinstein thrust me into it by doing some very below-the-belt personal attacks and trying to bring my biography into his legal threats as much as possible. You can read all about that in the book. You know, the killing of the story meant that the path of my career changed really fundamentally. A, you know, a future in network news that I thought I had went away, and then a, a whole different path, as it turns out, opened up. And it became apparent to me that it was worth doing something where I was a little bit the story because I was going through something where I had a platform to talk about the intimidation and the threats and being followed around and so forth, the stuff that happened to my career, where tons of reporters go through this sort of thing and don't have a platform. So it, it was significant. It was an important body of reporting that I had to do, and it did mean talking about myself, hopefully in a way that's as sort of vulnerable and frank as possible. But by and large, what you don't want as a reporter is to get caught up in any kind of criminal justice repercussions that might arise, even in part as a result of your reporting. And you actually see that conviction play out in the plot of the book. There's a moment where your colleagues at uh, SDNY are really eager to talk to me, as a, not as a reporter, but as a witness, um, you know, as someone who dealt with a degree of intimidation and espionage tactics that I think there's a fair case uh, it may have crossed the line legally. You know, they're doing things like GPS location uh, tactics on my phone. Um, we haven't gotten into the whole plot thread in the book that's about me being staked out and followed, but it goes up to and maybe beyond a, a line of legality um, and into... You know, I won't use specific legal terms of art, but the stuff that could meet the threshold of a variety of violations of law. Uh, and so there's a, a real crystallization of this dilemma where ultimately the general counsel at The New Yorker, Fabio Bertoni, and I decide I'm not going to say yes and come in and talk to them as a witness because our first principle is to be journalists and separate from that. And even when we support what's happening in a legal proceeding, that it seems like it's a good move towards accountability – our first priority is to remain disentangled from that and to protect sources involved. And the moment you open the door to that kind of a conversation with law enforcement, you are risking giving up, you know, sensitive reporting material in some way. So all of that is a long preamble to say, seeing criminal repercussions in a case that has been about a powerful person dodging criminal accountability for a long time is satisfying. But I feel very attenuated from it. And I think correctly so. You know, I watch from afar. I wonder why that is, because when last you were here, we had a fairly extended discussion about Cy Vance, the Manhattan District Attorney, who mm -hmm. you were fairly critical of for not having brought a particular case that involves that tape you were talking about against mm -hmm. Harvey Weinstein. And I think there's some members of the police department who also thought that was a case that should have been brought. That case yes, wasn't brought and never has been brought. But now you have the current criminal case against Harvey Weinstein. Why do you think the current case happened? Don't you think it has something to do with the reporting that you and others did and and a lot of people in the Me Too movement have shed light on how important it is that this stuff be brought to court and people held accountable? Of course. It's absolutely as a result of a whole community of reporters that forced a spotlight on this where law enforcement had dropped the ball for a long time. And um, despite the excellent efforts of the NYPD, you know, this DA's office dropped the ball. The reality of reporting being solid enough to lead to criminal proceedings is something I only welcome. The fact that, you know, a lot of jurors had read the book and that that made voir dire like a little more complicated in this case is only a source of gratification uh, to the extent that I would care about such a thing at all. The fact that 
Harvey Weinstein's attorney, you know, brought in a dog-eared copy of Catch and Kill and read from it in open court in an effort to discredit one of the uh, accusers. I would humbly submit a misconstruing of uh, what is written in that book. Basically, they tried to take a case in which a woman was initially afraid to talk and present it as an inconsistency. But certainly, they're welcome to it. That's the way it should work. I put out reporting into the public. It can be used, however, in a criminal process. I think it is separate to become involved directly in any way beyond right. the use of the reporting that is You're not a witness at the trial. That's right. And, and they're, <laughs> you know, like the, the Los Angeles authorities are building uh, what could be a very strong case potentially. And there again, there's been outreach and, you know, uh, inquiries about can they have any reporting material? And they're really good guys in that DA's office and, and women. And uh, I think would never like subpoena a publication or be adversarial in that way. But you know, it's a hard conversation to say, hey, I support what you're doing, but I also can't be a part of it because my job is different. Yeah, it's a weird paradox. Yeah, it is. You have to keep those things separate. And on the fe- in the federal system, you probably couldn't be issued that subpoena. It has to go right up to the attorney general, I believe, to issue a subpoena like that, even if it's for a good purpose and to hold people accountable. It, it would be a dark day, I think, if uh, people trying to build these kinds of cases ran around trying to strong-arm journalists into turning over materials. So how strong do you think the pending case against Harvey Weinstein is in Manhattan. And the reason I ask that question is that I want to ask you, you know, what do you think will be the consequence of a conviction and on the other hand, an acquittal? Well, you know, it, it's without a doubt for many of the sources that I've worked with a significant moment because it's the first time that there have been criminal proceedings against a guy who in the eyes of many of them should have faced criminal justice much sooner. And already the way that the trial has played out has been illustrative of the many extreme tactics someone of this stature and wealth can throw at a case to chip away at it. One of the episodes of the podcast is about Lucia Evans. She shows up in the book as well. One of the first women to accuse Harvey Weinstein of rape. And she was a lead accuser in the criminal proceedings too. Really made a very difficult decision to upend her whole life yet again to go up against Weinstein in court. And it's very interesting how he managed to get that charge dropped. You know, he sicked private investigators on everyone around this thing and openly talked about that, bragged about it, said, you know, we got this charge dropped because of the work of our private investigator. His attorney said that at the time. And they were able to discredit uh, one of the NYPD detectives on the case. And, you know, basically, as it was told to me by sources in that DA's office, they continued to find this woman credible. But there were enough process issues raised. Enough was done to assail the integrity of this cop that the charge was viewed as being kind of tainted. So, you know, you you rapidly get a sense of why it's taken so long. And because of all of that, Preet, I guess the answer to the question, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. I think the case is stronger than not. But ultimately, Harvey Weinstein's story is the story of a long journey of evading accountability. And it would be the least surprising thing in the universe to see that happen again. Are you worried a little bit that the movement and the issue is much larger than Harvey Weinstein? He might be one of the worst and most famous and most heinous exemplars of the issue and the problem in American society, but it doesn't begin and end with him. And is there a worry that we place so much emphasis on this moment because he's the one person of his stature who's being hauled into court that either way, that a conviction we will put too much weight on as if there's some broad vindication when there's so much other problematic 
things going on. And on the other hand, an acquittal will be overly demoralizing. Do you worry about that? I, I think you're framing it in exactly the right way. I, I mean, I don't know who the disembodied people putting a huge premium on it are, but certainly I, I would advise them not to. I mean, both in the sense that within this process of various law enforcement offices trying to hold Harvey Weinstein accountable, the New York trial is just one little piece of the puzzle. You know, if he uh, gets off in New York, there's a significantly more robust case waiting in Los Angeles. You know, it's going to be a long time if there isn't a conviction here. It'll be a long time before we actually know that Harvey Weinstein uh, is not going to be convicted. So I think it would be a mistake even within the process of this one case to ascribe too much significance to this ruling that's coming up. But also more broadly, you're absolutely right. Harvey Weinstein is one person. The reason the story was so significant is partly because so many of the tactics he used to evade accountability were emblematic of a larger set of systems which are alive and well today and require more tough reporting and more strides towards accountability. Right. None of his enablers are on trial. Right. None of the people who knew what he was doing are on trial. None of the people who turned a blind eye are on trial, and they will never be on trial. Yeah, and I, I think that's where that kind of behavior, the aiding and abetting of these crimes, and I really do think that's what happened, you know, when this story got killed over and over and over again, when people around Harvey Weinstein looked the other way, I, I think crimes were aided and abetted. Those aren't acts of complicity that we have criminal charges for right now. Um, and that's fine. But I think that I think that it's all the more important in those cases that the court of public opinion really take a hard look at those systems that enable this kind of criminal activity year after year. You mentioned the court of public opinion. And so my question is about not how the court of public opinion should, as I think you rightly say, should focus on these systems and protocols and issues that cause these problems to arise and this violence against women to arise, but how the court of public opinion should operate with respect to specific cases against specific men, specific allegations made. And so, you know, I very loyally in my, in my view of all these mm -hmm. things about, you know, what is truth, what isn't, who's culpable, who isn't. Harvey Weinstein has gone to trial. We'll see what happens in that case. But there are scores of other allegations, some of which are just somebody saying that somebody did something, and others of which have been vetted through, you know, rigorous reporting with contemporaneous witnesses and, you know, all sorts of corroborating facts that still never end up in a court of law. Mm -hmm. And those are still, in our system of justice, right, considered allegations that will never be tested or adjudicated in any way. They just are sort of out there, whether it's Ronan Farrow, who we can understand is a responsible journalist, and maybe other people reporting who are maybe less responsible. How should the public judge the people who have been accused through reporting but then ultimately never have their day in court in either direction. Well, it's clearly case by case. So you draw the distinction between someone who is accused in a, a lightly reported context of a serious crime or even a completely unreported context. You know, there's all sorts of social media posts saying so-and-so did such and such a terrible thing. There are lists on... Sure, there are on, on various the, yeah. terrible men lists. Um, and, you know, forget this specific subset of sexual violence. With respect to any kind of criminal activity, I would like to think that the public is sophisticated enough to draw a pretty bright distinction between that sort of thing and really detailed investigative reporting that meets a very high evidentiary bar. And it's absolutely pivotal to the future of the Republic that we have that kind of intensive investigative reporting 
that can hold powerful people accountable, especially in those cases where they're not likely to yield criminal proceedings as part of the aftermath. You know, that, that kind of reporting has to stand on its own and present to the public, hey, here, here's a really persuasive set of facts that should make us think twice about whatever the issue we're writing about is. As someone who cares a lot about rigorous reporting, of course I'm troubled by the idea that anyone would ever conflate those two things. I'm troubled by the idea that an unsourced blog post or tweet would ever be mistaken for reporting. I haven't seen a lot of that happen. I think people are pretty savvy about drawing the distinction between some kind of a a list that's thrown out there by whatever concerned citizens and a big New York Times investigation that clearly serves up the goods on some significant problem. But if those things were ever completed, I would, I would say that's a mistake to do that. What about the conflation of, of actions on the part of different people? You know, I think some people have gotten in trouble for suggesting that there's a variation among the various people who've been accused with respect to how serious their conduct was. You have Harvey Weinstein, who's been accused of being a serial rapist, and you have other people who have done lesser things. Do you, do you get into that debate at all? Does that matter? I get into it less because I've only reported on cases that rise to a very high bar of criminal activity and only include sort of alleged lesser offenses if they corroborate an MO that also extends to a more extreme degree of criminality. And why, so, why have you made that choice? Because my time is limited and I'm only one person and, you know, I'm looking for very serious acts of corruption or malfeasance or whatever kind of criminal activity that demand that limited bandwidth that I can give. And so I haven't really waded into any kind of debate about less serious allegations that maybe are still worthy of public discourse. I think that there absolutely is a space that's kind of a, you know, an overlap in the Venn diagram where it isn't necessarily a degree of seriousness that would be the anchor point of a big body of investigative reporting for me that I like spend a year hunting down, but it still demands some legitimate conversation about was this okay? I think it's totally permissible that that would happen. And I think we've actually seen some pretty good newspaper reporting that falls into that more yeah. in-between category. I'm going to talk about lawyers for another second. We're both trained lawyers, although I practiced, you didn't. But lawyers played a big role, both in a good way and in a bad way, in a lot of these stories and throughout your book. Do you have a view on what the role of, a, of an attorney should be in connection with these allegations? And there was particular targeting of you and hiring of a firm named Black Cube. I'm, I'm throwing you a whole bunch of mm -hmm. objectionable compound questions <laughs> to get at this issue and have you maybe explain to us how you're thinking about the role of lawyers acting ethically and appropriately has evolved, if it has evolved at all. It's something I've given a lot of thought to as someone who, you know, got into the legal profession because I believed in it, you know, and took the bar and paid my bar dues because I still believe in it. And and who encounters stories all the time that come to light because of good lawyering. You know, that so many whistleblowers that I've worked with are represented by, you know, wonderful attorneys who do that kind of work of working with government whistleblowers or other types of whistleblowers. Every story that I do sees the light of day because of good media lawyering because Fabio Bertoni, the general counsel of The New Yorker, is a badass, you know, and and really is uh, oriented towards both legal caution and journalistic empowerment as his goals. At every publication where you see tough stories breaking, it's probably because a, a lawyer got behind it and said, okay, here's how we do it carefully and do it right, but do it. And then, as you suggested, the book is riddled with instances of lawyers doing things that seem totally contrary to the ethics of the profession from my standpoint, 
that are duplicitous, that are underhanded. Uh, there's the whole sort of phalanx of attorneys who shielded Harvey Weinstein and went after reporters working on the story and accusers trying to bring these kinds of claims to light. You have someone like Lisa Bloom, who's you know really a double agent in the plot. <laughs> she, Explain that. So Lisa Bloom is a you know self-styled women's rights activist. She's someone who was a regular on my cable news program, always talking about the perils of powerful men evading accountability after alleged uh, sex crimes, you know, representing victims of Bill Cosby and Donald Trump and and so forth, and who had written voluminously on uh, how credible my sister's claim about Woody Allen was. And as someone I turned to for advice as I was working with these sources with NDAs and NBC was getting hinky about that kind of reporting on NDAs, you know, before I had uncovered the full story of why, and who at the time, unbeknownst to me, was representing Harvey Weinstein to try to kill stories about him and smear his accusers. It makes for uh, an unsettling plot thread to return to, and it was unsettling when I realized it at the time. You know, I had a conversation with her at the end of all that where I said, you promised you wouldn't tell his people. You know, she had disclosed that she had a relationship with him of some kind, but not that she was representing him. And she said, well, this is an awkward position that I'm in because he, he optioned my book. He's making a movie out of it. And I am his people. And I mean, I'll never forget that phrase. And, and the reason that I knew that and was having that conversation with her was her name started to appear on the legal threat letters that were coming at me, which, among other points, tried to use as a cudgel the idea that my sister had been brainwashed, which is such a uh, clearly irrelevant <laughs> consideration in the claims about Harvey Weinstein, but it was but it all got in very there. personal with respect to you. Right, it was sort of designed to unsettle and, and shake me. Did it? Uh, of course, of course. I mean, I was losing my job over it at the time, so it was it was all an unsettling period. But uh, and I was more than that afraid the story would never see the light of day. But the the shock of someone who I considered an ethically conscientious lawyer who had built a brand about going up against these kinds of power structures, being so embedded in them, was really emblematic of a, a much wider swath of the sort of bad lawyering we see and the compromises of conscience that unfortunately sometimes afflict our profession. But you would agree that Harvey Weinstein is entitled to a defense? Of course. Harvey Weinstein is entitled to a vigorous and robust defense, up to and including, by the way, uh, potentially uh, those attorneys using private investigators. I think that... What does the line get crossed? Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I think that the reason that so many people look at this fact pattern and say what Harvey Weinstein was doing with these attorneys and the PIs that they hired crosses a line that is not just him having the vigorous defense he's entitled to, but is actually hurting other people or breaking the rules in a way we're not comfortable with. And causing them to have fear? That's and right. terrorizing it, them? It, it's, it's when it crosses over into sort of terrorizing people and, you know, things like not just hiring PIs to do open source research, but hiring PIs who hire subcontractors who follow around and potentially hijack the phones of, of you know, journalists. So you mentioned that before. Lawyers hired investigators to follow you. Right. So lawyers, in this case, Boyce Schiller, hired, and this has been you know, admitted to in court now, it's part of the trial, uh, hired this Israeli private intelligence firm, Black Cube. Black Cube hired local subcontractors um, who followed me around, and one of whom becomes a source over the course of the book and gives a detailed play-by-play of exactly what they were doing. And, you know, it would have to be determined in a legal proceeding 
when and where and if that crossed legal lines. But I, I can tell you, being on the receiving end of it, it's not the sort of thing you want to see happening routinely to reporters working on stories. And certainly it was enough that SDNY did open a fraud investigation. As far as you know, um, were you followed here? <laughs> uh, I'll be sure to sick my tails on you, Because we, we don't want our guests being intimidated uh, when they come on, stay tuned. Thank you, Preet. And you seem not to have been. You know, the other facet of bad lawyering that I would just point to before we move on from this point is there's the kind of direct support for Harvey Weinstein and his effort to kill this story that crossed a lot of lines. And then there's the lawyering around efforts to report on this. Overall, I am so grateful for the lawyers who empower these stories and the fact that I landed in a place where I encountered that. And so my predominant feeling is a positive one, but it, it is worth noting that this story stayed quiet as long as it did, and people continued to get hurt as long as they did, partly because media lawyers and news outlets bowed to power and the edicts of their bosses that were made for unjournalistic reasons and were willing to articulate you know, pretty thin, phony legal arguments to try to cover for that. And you see, you know, lawyers with legitimate reputations, uh, Kim Harris, who used to work at the White House, uh, saying things that you could look at her and know she she didn't buy that this was a real legal threat, but, you know, doing her, her soldier's best to follow an order to kill a story about a, an alleged serial rapist. Let me just end on a more upbeat note, because something you wrote struck me, and it's this. I would not have written this book if I thought it was just a glum and dreary account of how broken our systems are or how acute the power imbalances. It is a hopeful story about how whistleblowers at every turn expose the truth. It certainly is. Thank you for that, Preet. I've been heartened by the whole reaction to this book. It was a real labor of love. It meant, you know, <laughs> going in guns blazing, knowing the reporting was going to be bulletproof and survive, but still, like, going into battle, you know, and, and realizing that I was burning a ton of bridges with, you know, powerful people and powerful places. And it's been incredibly gratifying to see how invested people have been in it and also how they've gotten that point that you just made, how people have walked away from it feeling optimistic and realizing that the discussion of the obstacles in here is ultimately in service of the realization that we're going to continue to surmount those obstacles because the free press is alive and well and the sources are still brave and the whistleblowers keep coming. Catch and Kill. Read the book, listen to the podcast. Ronan Farrow, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again Thank for being you, on Preet. the show. Always a pleasure. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To hear the Stay Tuned bonus with Ronan Farrow and get the weekly Cafe Insider podcast and other exclusive content, head to cafe.com slash insider. Right now, you can try a Cafe Insider membership free for two weeks at cafe.com slash insider. And if you're a student... With a valid .edu email address, there's now a special rate. Head to cafe.com slash student. So I want to end this week's program with a note from within the legal profession. As you know, I'm a lawyer, and I sometimes even play one on TV. And if you've been following the world, you know that the legal profession has not been historically especially diverse. Like many other professions, it's long been dominated by white males. So the interesting milestone I want to tell you about is not just about the law and the legal profession, but also relates to struggles throughout our country and throughout the world for equality, inclusiveness, and diversity. So for a long time, it's been very difficult for women to reach the same positions and the same numbers as men in the law in America. When I graduated from law school in 1993, 
only 43% of first-year law students were women. There have, of course, been tremendous milestones. Women participate in the profession at the highest levels more than any time in the past. So, for example, there are more women on the Supreme Court than ever before, but that's only three out of nine. There are more women law school deans than ever before, but that's only 35%. There are more women equity partners at major law firms in the country, but that's only 19%. There are more women in the House of Representatives than ever before, but that's just 23.4%. That's why a recent article in the Washington Post caught my eye. As the Post reports, for the first time ever, the 16 top law schools in the country, and that includes Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Georgetown, Duke, Columbia, which is my alma mater, NYU Law School, which is where I teach, in all 16 of those top-ranked law schools, the editor-in-chief of the flagship law journal is a woman. 16 women, 16 editors-in-chief at the top law journals in the United States. What's a law journal? It's a good question. I served on my law journal, and I often used to ask that question myself. Suffice it to say for lay people, it's an academic journal in which top-flight academic articles are published that expand people's understandings of the law, go deep on issues of jurisprudence, and it's pretty much the highest and most prestigious credential a law student can achieve. It's the key to opening doors at the best law firms, the key to the most prestigious clerkships, including on the Supreme Court of the United States, and forever follows you as one of the most impressive, if not the most impressive credential that a person can earn in law school. Barack Obama, for example, was the first African-American president of the Law Review at Harvard. But not only that, to become the president of the flagship law journal at your school, you have to be entrusted by your peers to be exceptionally smart, exceptionally rigorous, and have tremendous leadership skills. So congratulations to these 16 women. Now, lest we get too excited, let's remember, given the metrics I recited earlier, there's still a long way to go before there is parity in pay and parity in position for women in the law. And so with that, I leave you with some wise words from the one and only notorious RBG. Help me finish this sentence, okay? There will be enough female oh. justices on the Supreme Court when there are... You know what the answer is. When there are nine, of course. <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ronan Farrow. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tatashore. And the Cafe team is Julia Doyle, Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Calvin Lord, Sam Ozer-Staten, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, 
and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.